to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at... 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. and welcome to Breaking the Silence. I am Greg Williams. And as you look down here, it looks like the sun's getting ready to go down on a very hazy, rainy, gloomy day here in Houston. Uh, looks like we have a, a few days of rain ahead of us. Uh, we got a good shower this morning, but, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what's going on outside as much as it's mattering what's happening right now. And tonight we're going to bring a uh, array of hope, sunshine, resiliency, uh, strength, inspiration to you tonight in the value of human beings and the love of a family uh, in a special way with tonight's guest. And I tell you what, there's two ways that you can get involved. Well, really three. One is you can just sit back and and listen and learn and, and be inspired. Two, you can actually call in to the beautiful people at BBS radio station and TJ and Don and Doug and those great people will answer the phones and patch you right on through to the guest and us. Uh, tonight at 888-627-6008. Or you can actually get right on the uh, Shattered by the Darkness Facebook page, which my awesome youngest son, Curtis, uh, is taking care of in the U.S. Army in Seattle, Washington right now. And he takes care of all my social media and all the Facebook because I don't know how it works. I don't know how, and I really don't care how it works. <laughs> you can get on there, look at it, comment, uh, like it. Follow us. If you have questions, feel free uh, to do that, and uh, we'll just uh, get that comment or those questions to you. And also, always, by the end of the show, I have a phone that is just vibrating with text messages. 832-396-6525 is my personal cell phone number that just went around the world, and everybody knows it. And uh, I usually answer it if I can. If I'm not in the middle of something, I will try to get back to you as quick as I can. So just welcome to the show. Tonight, this week has been one of those um, different weeks, and it's been a good week, bad week, low week, high week. Uh, the car engine in my vehicle uh, totally blew up this week, uh, but it had some good things that came out of that. There's always good that comes out of bad. I always try to find that anyway. But, you know, it seems like sometimes I start looking down when, when things start happening in in a not-so-positive way in my world, I start piling those up in a basket, and I start carrying that baggage around with me. And somehow, and maybe you do this too, somehow I allow it to 
damage or devalue who I am as a person. And this week, I really want to uh, just let you know that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what you're involved in right now, you have an unbelievable, priceless value to who you are. And I want you to know your worth. We often accept the love that we think that we deserve. And it makes no sense to be second in someone's life when you know you're good enough to be first in someone's life. And uh, I think sometimes I miss my value. You know, nowadays people know the price of everything. But, you know, the value of nothing. And there is a difference. Everybody has value. Don't waste your feelings on people that don't value who you are. A couple things I, I want to let you know and maybe try this week. First of all, it's worth the effort. It's worth the time to forgive yourself. It's worth the effort. And it's worth the time to attempt to forgive other people. And in that, I want to indicate to you that your value doesn't decrease based on someone else's inability to see your worth. Now, I don't know if you caught that or not, but your value doesn't decrease based on someone else's inability to see your worth. So know your worth, embrace your worth. The day you settle for less is the day that congratulations, you will get less. One other thing, believe in the person that you're capable of being. The real purpose in life is to evolve and to grow into the whole person that you're capable of being. By all means, I am not the person that had been abused that this book talks about all of those years in my childhood. But those things that I experienced made me who I am today. So I can't damn everything in my past. I have to learn from it and then engage on doing everything that I possibly can to make the best of what I have been dealt in life. And I think in reality, sometimes I look at my cards and I go, I don't like this hand. I'll throw away three, hand me three more. If you're playing cards, you play poker or whatever. Sometimes you get the ability to trade in the bad things for the good, but in the experience, Sometimes it makes the hand a little more valuable than what we thought it could be. So know your worth and don't waste your feelings on people that just don't value you. And never cry for the person that doesn't know the value of your tears. Um, when you take time to learn just how much you are worth, you will immediately stop giving people discounts. 
on himself. And in the end, loving yourself is about enjoying your life, trusting your own feelings, taking chances, losing and finding happiness, cherishing those special memories, and learning from the, the past. And sometimes you just have to stop worrying, stop wondering, stop doubting, and have faith that things are going to work out, maybe not exactly how you plan, but maybe exactly how they were meant to be. So tonight and this week, take time to discover your worth. You can lean in here if you want to, because let me tell you, you are priceless. You are a masterpiece and you have value. And one thing I want to, as we bring our guest in uh, tonight, Patrick Smithick has shown in his parenting and his quest what true family, true dedication, true commitment, true parenthood is all about. I read this book this afternoon, and it totally um, inspired me to know what a love of a father and a mother and a family can do. And uh, he's a great author. Patrick's been around for years. He's written several books about uh, horses and racing and, and steeplechasing and, and those type of things and, and did very well with that. And he has uh, degrees hanging on his wall that go way past longer than the degrees on my wall. And it's just a well-known uh, teacher and, and writer. But when he wrote a book that we're going to talk about now called Wars Over, Come Home, his gifted storyteller turns into a different type of storyteller. It's not just about horses and races. It's not just about training and steeplechases. It's about looking, searching transcontinentally for your son. And we're going to talk about that tonight. And Patrick, if you can hear me tonight, if you can see me, welcome to the program this evening. And it is an honor, sir, to have you on Breaking the Silence tonight. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can, Greg. Thank you very much. I, I really like that introduction that that influenced me. It kind of stunned me a little bit. <laughs> But uh, well, it's great to have someone on the on the program tonight that has just as much white hair as I do. So I yeah. just thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to change the lights. It doesn't look like I have a halo. <laughs> I tell you, I, I'm sure to get that myself. It's good to have you. And I, I tell you, Patrick, this book moved me uh, the, the way you wrote it. I literally felt my heart racing to try to catch up with your son. And just so we can um, let everybody know, tell us a little bit about you, and then I'm just going to let you tell uh, the world about why you wrote the book and what caused you to want to write the book and share this journey that, to my understanding, still hasn't ended. Is that correct, Patrick? Yes, that's correct, yes. Tell us all about it. All right. Well, um, 
here I am right now. I'm in the uh, refurbished milking parlor of our barn where I was brought up. And I'm from a, a very horsey family. My father and uncle are both in the Racing Hall of Fame. My uh, father is a steeplechase trainer and my uncle as a, my father as a steeplechase rider, the greatest of all times, and my uncle as a trainer. And so I was brought up in the world of the racetrack, which uh, was a uh, um, little bit on the wild side when when I was a youth. And, and but I just loved it. And uh, I worked very hard for my father from from the age of about 15. He had a very bad fall and had to start his career over as a trainer. So I worked my way through high school and all through Johns Hopkins by galloping horses at Pimlico racetrack every morning at five o'clock in the morning, and then going to classes. And um, since then, I've, I've married my wife, Ansley, who I met at Highlands University. I, I sat down, had a cup of coffee with her in the cafeteria and uh, never and Never got up in a way. We've been together ever since that first cup of coffee, since that first moment. So then we, uh, I started my career, and I worked on newspapers. I worked on the Chesapeake Bay as a waterman for a couple of years, and then I was a senior magazine writer. And all along, I wanted to get into writing books. Yeah, and so I, I've written uh, three books. Uh, three. I've written a trilogy that's just been published: uh, "Racing My Father," all about my love for my father growing up. And the uh, the sort of wonderful world that we inhabited then, where every we every, it was kind of like Huckleberry Finn uh, going down to Mississippi, where we all worked together and helped each other in in that world of the of the '60s. Then I wrote the next book, Flying Change, was about going back to being a steeplechase jockey at the age of 50 after I'd said goodbye, and everyone was very happy about be saying goodbye because it's extremely dangerous. And then the most recent book is called Racing Time, and that deals with grief, which this upcoming book we're going to talk about also deals with. But that deals with the uh, grief from uh, three of my best friends who were very high up in the racing world, all dying at about the same time, and how to, how to deal with that. And it's also a celebration of their lives, mm. a celebration of male camaraderie, which I think is something that is very much missing in our um, in our literature. I agree. Then this book, when I was finishing Racing Time, and I was working on that at the, in 2017, 18, 19, at the same time, our son uh, was home from the Iraq War, our son Andrew, our middle son. And at first, he, he came home from two tours in Iraq, and he was doing all right. He was getting jobs. He had a really good security job. and But then gradually... The PTSD started hitting him and he just kind of went into a downward spiral that took a few years for it really to happen. But uh, so at the time I was finishing racing time, we would get a call one night uh, because then around 2018, suddenly uh, all connection with Andrew was cut, cut. We didn't know where he was, what he was doing. We knew I knew from his several jobs. He was a uh, work security. He drove trucks did different things like that. And uh, I knew he had lost the jobs and we, we knew he wasn't doing well. And then he became homeless. So we started looking for him in around 2017, 2018. And I was still teaching full time. And I would, we would all of a sudden we'd see on Facebook, we see someone that looks like your son and they'd show us a picture and we'd go all the way to San Diego or Santa Fe or Seattle, just on a hunch. 
and look through, uh, you know, hundreds of, well, thousands of homeless people and thousands of homeless veterans trying to find him. And then we come home and, and a, a few times we did find him and most of the time we didn't. And then I, when I come home, I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning and I, I didn't know what I was going to do with the material, but it was such, it was such emotional material that coming back in the plane, I would jot down notes on it. And then when I got home, I'd get sort of like getting on a horse and letting the horse go. I would just write whatever it, it happened to try to get it while it's fresh. So then uh, I kept doing that for a few years and, and, uh, now the book's going to be published. It's, it's a focused look at about three or four years of our search for Andrew, his PTSD and his individuality and my love for him. And it's called a father's search for his son, but it's really the, the whole family's search for the son. And um, I'll let you see what you think about all that, Greg. <laughs> well, I tell you, um, I, I can't. And there's a couple things that just literally hit me very, very hard. I have three boys myself uh, and two were in the military. And uh, so I immediately was drawn to the story um, and the way it was written was unbelievable. But when you, when you started explaining that you would go to these cities, when you would get uh, a hint of uh, ide ideation that there could be your son in that city homeless on the street and you walk up and down pulling blankets back, looking at them and say, Andrew, is that you? That right. is haunting. And if you had to say how many cities that you went to looking for him, how many would that be, uh, Patrick? Our, um, our whole family, it'd be about a dozen, I suppose, a dozen different places. They weren't always cities. Sometimes they were more like little towns out away from cities, but about a dozen different different trips, and sometimes my um, son would would hop. My son, Patty, my, our oldest son, he would hear about it, and, and uh, he'd call me and tell me about that there was a sighting in New Mexico somewhere, and I'd say, "Well, where? When are you going to go?" He said, "Dad, I'm here." <laughs> I said, "When'd you go?" He said, "I went this morning." You know, he would just hop on the plane and go, and so it was living this life where you were just on edge, where you might. You kind of wanted to get the call, and but you had to always be prepared to someone to take my classes, someone to feed the horses, to uh, you know, to get on a plane and and just leave and leave everything you're doing, your appointments and your normal life, and then to to engage in this life where you're immersed in the in the lives and the unbelievable uh, misery of of many of the homeless people, and sometimes you're in. Um, very dangerous situations also. So you, you'd know that you'd be leaving to go do that. You might be searching through, I remember in San Diego, searching through this canyon and there are heroin needles all around us and it was dark and, and, you know, we were, and my daughter was there and she was crying and, and um, so we had a, we had a person helping us for a while in San Diego and she kept driving us, steering us to this place and that place. And finally I thought she was getting a little, kooky and maybe I should try to uh, let her go and I asked if I could drive her home and she said well she sleeps under um, let me off at the McDonald's and so when I let her off at the McDonald's I picked up her backpack and it was kind of heavy and she said well that's because it has a revolver in it 
And there she was sitting right behind me with this revolver and she's homeless herself. So we just had all kinds of experiences. And that was when we went to San Diego, for instance, out of the thousands of homeless people, we did find the one person that people thought was Andrew, but it was just this young man that was, that was a, a little bit uh, weaker and, and smaller and, and, uh, you know, he looked slightly like Andrew, but it was not Andrew. So then that was just the most disillusioning moment. You know, Patrick, and I know there's no words to put into this that you can even say, but you, you write about it a little bit in a beautiful way. Uh, what kind of impact does this have on you and that lovely woman that you had the cup of coffee with years ago and still sipping on the cup all the way to today? Um, what kind of impact, grief, stress, fractures, uh, pressure, does this put on a family, on a marriage? And how did you endure that? It does. Uh, I have a quote at the beginning of, at the, beginning of the book. I have it and written I, down right here. Yes. I was talking to my daughter, Eliza, who was a huge help on on doing this book. She helped me find the publisher, and it's just helped me all along with the photographs. It was so emotional to get the photographs out of Andrew as a little boy and all these photographs from the Marines, and Eliza helped me. But at one point, I was told Eliza, when there was some friction in her family, I said, you know, this search could tear a family apart. And Eliza said, yes, Dad, but it could bring the family together. So um, I like to think that, that that that's what it has definitely done. And uh, it's put a it's put a, a tremendous pressure that sometimes I don't I don't pay enough attention to on his uh, siblings, his older brother, uh, Patty, who's a dentist and his and his younger sister, Eliza, who is uh, uh, works in marketing and, and design. And um, then it's put the probably the most pressure of all on on Andrew's mother. And she just thinks about him constantly and and worries about him. And, you know, he, he was our most social child. He was our most cuddly child. He he liked being at home and just being cozy. And and now he's out there and he's and then when he got a little older, he was always the ringleader of his friends and had his arms around his friends and they'd be calling up, where's Andrew? What's Andrew doing? And now to think of him just completely by himself, I think that really hurts Ansley and, and uh, just tears at her heart. And also in the book, there's quite a bit about his uh, PTSD and his uh, schizophrenia and um, uh, hallucinations and where he imagines these horrible things about us. And, and, you know, it hurts her so much that he doesn't want to come home, that he, that he, that he says these things about us. And he thinks we're out persecuting him at, at one point, you know, he thought his brother was up on the roof working for the FBI and then his sister's working for the FBI and they're all searching for him. This paranoia just got worse and worse. But um, with my wife, it is, is definitely, She's an extremely strong woman. And during this part of the search, she became head of a school, the head of a school in the middle of the year, right in the middle of the search. So she can really, she's had to handle a lot of pressure and, and um, she's done an amazing job. I'll tell you, the, the first, and I, I write down, when I'm reading, I always write down quotes that I try to 
pivot the whole book on. And the, the one, the very first quote on the very first page uh, was the quote that you just said from Eliza, the, you know, this is going to rip our family apart. And then her saying, yes, it may, but it could bring us together. And it sounds like it's rallied you all into a unit of one, even more so. I mean, you're a close family to begin with. You can tell by the pictures, Patrick, the pictures of him and your family and, and your wife, reading them stories with e each of your boys on each shoulder um, are, are beautiful pictures of this family. Yeah, I love that picture. That was at, uh, on Chincoteague Island. And that's the kind of thing Andrew loved. Oh, I can Now that you're talking about it, all these memories are coming back. I remember re reading him. I'm the, I'm the biggest sap for, for children's books. And I remember reading him Black Beauty in the bed. I used to read to all my children. And, you know, and, and I remember him is you know he's about eight years old looking up in my eyes and there i was crying because it's about horses and everything and the black beauty's having such a horrible time the owners are beating her and everything and and uh so yeah, he had he had a, a wonderful upbringing and we uh you know i taught him everything how to ride how to ski i, I worked on a lot of and when he was a senior at college i worked on i mean in high school his papers with him the battle of the bulge and uh, we used to run a lot together. I'm, I was always a runner and a rider. And uh, he was, Andrew got really good at cross country. He's about 6'3", and he has long legs. And he he can just run forever. And that was a huge help when he went to Paris Island and joined the Marines. Because when he got down there, he, he only had about five minutes to write notes to us back. And he'd write me these little notes. He He said, Dad, some of these guys aren't doing so well here. He said, but we went to the 10-mile obstacle course last night, and then we weren't allowed to sleep, and then we had to get up and run another five miles. And uh, and uh, I did pretty well, Dad. I finished second in the whole thing. And, uh, you know, that all came from his fitness that I was so proud that we used to run together. So, and and it, it sounds like, Patrick, some of the, the, the uh, people that have seen him uh, – have noticed that he was out for a morning jog or he was on this hike or something like that. So he must still be doing some of that activity that was instilled in him as a kid and in high school that he must do that uh, for activity now still. He does. And he, he, he still does that. Uh, and also from the Marines and uh, it touched my heart. His, his uncle Graham took a picture of him, a video one time of him, of him running. He would get up and run every morning and Graham got a picture of him, and he had a red bandana in his back pocket. And I'm always known for having a red bandana. And he, Graham said, Graham, who I was just talking to a moment ago, who was a Marine, and was a good friend of uh, Andrew's, and his uncle said, who's that remind you of? <laughs> so he, yeah, he's been running, and um, uh, he usually runs every morning. And then when we were, last time we were tracking him, and we knew where he was really uh, was in 2018, and he was hiking about 13 miles a day then from the foothills of uh, above Albuquerque down to the Rio Grande and back. And he had a he has a very regimented schedule then. And he actually we stopped. I stopped at some 7-Elevens and different places, and the people there were so nice to me. And they all said they really liked when he came in because they said sometimes that you know they get robbed, and sometimes these rough guys come in there and they feel safer when he's around. So he would, uh, you know, that touched my heart also. But when we were at.
you know, please call us anytime, come home. Um, we'd love to help you get a motel and get your life settled. And, but we never heard from him. He never, he never, uh, and there were money orders in the envelopes. He never cashed any of them. So he's on his own. We're going to take a break here in a minute, but uh, before we do, when is the last time that you actually, with your eyes, laid eyes on Andrew? That was, I was about as far away from this computer. Andrew was right here where this computer is. And we were in, we were at a hospital in New Mexico and we had it all set up with the, uh, the crisis intervention team and the police and the, and a judge and a psychiatrist that he would go there and get help in the psychiatric ward. And we got him there and they let him out in 20 minutes. And I, I, I kneeled before him and I told him, I just asked him, please, Andrew, you want to help you. But, but he, he was furious at all the police and everything. He said, I have my rights. And he got in the car and he drove away. And that's the last time we've seen him. I, I, Hey, I'll tell you, on the other side of this break, I want to drill back into that because the people that haven't read the book, I'm encouraging everyone to get, and we're going to let them know how they can do that when it's uh, going to be available to, to purchase. But um, I want to find out and let people know why and how this PTSD affected him because I'm sure people that's listening to this off the, the surface that don't know the whole story are saying, well, why didn't you just put him in the car and take him home? Why didn't he just call you and say, hey, come pick me up? PTSD is a huge issue. And there's a lot of things that's involved in this story. We're going to talk about that on the other side of our only commercial break tonight. 888-627-6008. Write this book title down right now. War's over. Come home. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. Hang with us. HCI Publishing that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores, Amazon, and Books A Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Welcome back. We have a wonderful author, writer, uh, horse trainer, and all this the different uh, things about Patrick Smithick. And you, if you're looking it up, like to buy the book, it's Smithwick, but I guess you don't pronounce the W, but it's Smithick. And uh, I have a, a question that just came across my text that it indicates, Patrick, they're asking you, do you think that the military failed in their transition process 
when Patrick was when when Andrew was released uh, back into after he was uh, out of the military? Do you think that there was a transitional flaw that could be fixed within our military system? All right. Well, well first, yeah, I would say I'll uh, get it directly into that. But people are all criticizing the VA, and I thought the the VA later on in in Andrews with all Andrew's problems, uh, did a very good job and um, trying to help him for a, a few weeks when we had him in the VA. But um, the when he was decommissioned, I would say, yes, it's not totally the military's fault. In, in, in wars past, I talked to some uh, veterans of, of World War II and in, even of Vietnam, and the, the soldiers... Uh, my uncle came back from the uh, Atlantic Theater and one came back from the Pacific Theater, World War II, and they came on ships with all the other soldiers and they played cards and had a few drinks and talked about their dreams. Then they came home to ticker tape parades and and uh, they were sort of with the other soldiers. And when Andrew came home, he, he just flew back from Iraq and uh, the Marines were really good because you heard during the war that uh, many of the other forces uh, of the military, the soldiers were kept longer than they were originally supposed to be there. But the Marines, man, they had it right on time. He came home right after his uh, eight months or whatever it was. He was over there twice. But then when he when he came home, then he ended up leaving the Marines. It just happened to be after that second tour. And it was only about six weeks later, really. And he there wasn't any uh, de much decompression, really. There wasn't much talk about going back into the world and he, he really wasn't prepared because when he even when he was in the marines when he'd go out in the civilian world he'd go to a pub or something and have a beer and then half the time there'd be some roughneck there and try to pick a fight with him and, and they'd say hey you think you're so tough that kind of thing and he'd be targeted so then when he um also the other thing is when he when he got back from iraq he was on uh he was used to that adrenaline rush uh, extreme adrenaline rush when you're seeing people blown up and and you're and you might get get it any minute yourself and then i so i was actually very worried about him his last few months after he came back because he kept uh you know he kept pushing the envelope on on what he was doing with the marines he would he and his buddies would all get in a car go down to mexico for the night and come back and just roll in at five o'clock in the morning on time for pt he called me up and told me about it. I said, Andrew, please stop doing that. But he, you know, you had to realize after what he'd been seeing that he was just on edge. And um, so then he that had that part. And then the um, the PTSD really did not manifest itself uh, aggressively until about it just gradually built up. The first year he was in pretty good shape, year and a half, he's in pretty good shape. About two years, things started happening. He started getting a twitch. And he started getting uh, obsessive compulsive, worrying about these little things and worrying about what people were saying or what his girlfriend was doing. And then it got so that he was uh, sort of hallucinating about it. And, um, and, you know, and as you know, it, it got worse and worse and it led to him leaving his jobs. And he always liked having a, he was always a very hard worker and liked to do very well at his jobs. And he, um, once he was out West for a while and he, he came East and, and um, he got people said, well, how's he going to get a job? I said, no problem. He had a job in two days, a really good truck driving job. And he really liked it. And it's so sad because he did a great job 
and he was transporting a medical supplies up and down the East Coast every day. It started at three o'clock in the morning, but gradually he just got a little bit more and more paranoid and he had to leave that job. So it, it just broke my heart. Then he got a really good job driving a bus in uh, Palm, Palm Springs, which was his uh, dream job for a while. And he passed the test and got the job and was all settled down. He liked those kind of jobs where he's helping people, helping with the medical supplies. He liked to help unload, meet all the people in the hospital. At the bus people, they had to tell him to stop talking quite so much to the passengers because he was getting out of his seat and helping the passengers down down the steps. <laughs> so, but uh, even with those jobs, then he, um, the paranoia and the and these these thoughts that his family was doing these were doing these terrible things and that his you know we were in the FBI and and uh, just uh, crazy thoughts started creeping into his head where the, then he couldn't keep a job anymore. And pretty soon he was homeless. So now he's just all by himself. Yeah. If uh, I have two friends, Gabe and Gavin, that are in a military uh, organization that takes veterans after they are uh, out of the military to transition them into uh, the the world again uh, in a wilderness program. And Gabe and Gavin are wonderful people. I'm going to talk to them and see if they can help out on this venture to to maybe see if they have some wisdom because they have a lot of connections on this. Um, one thing that me being in the medical field and working right down here at the Texas Medical Center, we we strive on HIPAA and we just underline, circle, and highlight that every time somebody walks into one of our buildings. You do what? I HIPAA. Uh, I gather by some of the comments that you made that HIPAA wasn't such a great process when you're trying to find someone in a family because you couldn't get any information out of any place that he was in, correct? That's a very good point. The uh, We knew he was getting a small disability check from the military, and I respect him, the, um, but we tried to um, you know contact the military and then contact, of course, the military wouldn't tell us where it was going, and then we tried to contact banks to find out where where the money is probably going to ATM machine. He had a couple of injuries. And, um, but due to HIPAA, they, uh, we never could really locate him that way. And then also, well, when you're probably talking about when he was in Seattle and he, he'd gotten in a, um, he'd been attacked. One time I went to Seattle, it was it happened to be Memorial weekend. Now I think of it. And I went to Seattle cause uh, we actually talked to him on the phone and I knew he he had been in the veterans hospital there, and he had been attacked, uh, probably by some homeless people. But but had come out of it all right, more or less. But had been in the hospital for a day or two. And I went in there, and if you you read might have read that section, and I was just furious because there's this 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 guy across the counter, and he's looking at his screen and had all the information about Andrew been in there, but he wasn't allowed to give me any of the information. So so then in the in that scene. Finally, I keep pushing him, and he uh, finally he calls his phone, and he says, "Yeah, got someone out here pushing the HIPAA," and uh, and a guy came out and sort of said, "Enough's enough." But I understand how we need our, uh, our privacy and we have our rights. But that then when we had him in the hospital in Albuquerque, and the um, my son and I wanted to talk to him, he was in the actually inside the hospital doors. 
and they would not let us in. I said, can't we? I said, we're coming in. We're coming in. Well, at that point, there are two policemen standing in front of us, plus the uh, psychologist behind them, plus a nurse. And we couldn't, the policeman made it very clear that we could not go in there. And and then when then we saw him when he was outside and we kept saying, well, can't we talk to him? We just want to talk to him. Can you keep him here for a minute? And they said, no, he has his rights. And they put him in the back of the car, just drove him wherever he wanted to go. And that, that's happened several times. When when you started and you and your wife decided, hey, put this ink on paper and let the world know the whole story. Is well, the ultimate my, my wife didn't decide that. I did. Your wife did. That was all yours. Yes. Okay. When that happened, was the goal of this book coming out to find him, to share with the world about how this kind of trauma can build resiliency and bring a family together to talk about how PTSD can be devastating if not treated. What's the ultimate goal of the book uh, when you wrote it and now that it's out for people to get? What do you really want the outcome to be? Probably a couple different answers, but uh, now that it is out, and it is printed and it's uh should be available may 16th it's uh you can pre-order it on amazon now wonderful you, you can come over to my barn i'm in the barn right now and i can uh sell you a copy i got 10 copies here <laughs> but uh so the the goal i'm a writer and so when it was taking place like the first time we uh uncle graham told us they had a sighting of andrew in orlando and that was our first search and andrew An- ansley and i went down there and we found out that he was living in a, a Catholic charities and he was working construction during the day. And we think working as a painter at night. And, um, you know, he was, he was doing fairly well. He had these two jobs and working at Catholic charities. Then I, um, I saw him there and I tracked him, had a, a very uh, horrendously emotional time following him for about an hour through Orlando, where I tried to talk him into coming home. I tried to talk him into letting us help him. And he would not, and in most of these, he would not recognize that I was his father. People would come by, he'd say, help, save me, this crazy man's after me. What do you want, a dollar? Get away, get away. And, um, you know, but I knew he knew where he was, as you could tell from the end of the scene. But so what I'm trying to say is, so I, I got back from that, and I wrote that up as a, I thought this would be a magazine piece. Maybe I can sell this as a magazine piece. and, and I, But I, I mainly wanted to write it while it's hot to have it. And at the time, I had no idea where this whole trip, where this whole thing would take us, where we, we might find him the next day or what would happen. So I'm a writer, and sometimes I, I don't really necessarily choose what I'm writing. I'm just, um, the, all these events were happening, and it was like it would be ridiculous not to write about them. I never even thought about not writing about it. So coming back, I would be writing, as, a, as I said. And then um, as it's come together pretty soon, I started having chapters and it got it was t- the original is twice as long as the book. You'll get the full version one day. <laughs> and so uh, the next thing I know, I have I have this huge this big book, 450 pages. And and I say, well, I got a book here. And so I want to get it published. And that's when your question comes in but when I'm when I was writing it I was writing what's happened and it was mainly about my love for Andrew and our love for Andrew and so people could see their 
there are over uh, you know over sixty thousand homeless vets in this country. So there's sixty thousand families wondering about their sons, their brother, their cousin, their uncle, their father. And uh, Andrew is one of them. He's kind of a microcosm of something that's happened throughout happening throughout our entire country. So I, once I got about halfway through it, I thought this is a, a really good, this is, this is something that I want to tell so people can see what's going on. And, and yes, maybe these vets will get more attention and more help and the homeless also just ge- the general homeless people, over 600,000 of them in the wealthiest country of, of civilization is, is, is a complete uh, disconnect. Yeah. So in short, it was about my, the book is about my love for family. I mean, for Andrew and his family's love for him and trying to get him help. And it's also for the, for the country to, to read, to see that this is a, a microcosm of what's happening to many families. And I've talked to so many families who are, who are having difficulties like this. It's just amazing. And now, now that you got me rolling, just the other day, I was, ta- I was talking to some people because I have a little card about the book, and I'd give it to them, and they'd say, oh, my God, my best friend next door, this, that, and the other, was a Navy SEAL, and he got back, and then he joined the CIA, and his leg was blown off, and but he was with the CIA for years, and everything, everyone thought he was all right. And the other day, he just committed suicide high up in the CIA. And so I'm I'm hearing all these stories about about soldiers with, with uh, I mean, about relatives, friends, loved ones with PTSD. I'm also reading a lot about it, but in, this has been going on for thousands of years, ever since the Greeks knew very well about uh, shell shock, and they had all different terms for it. And they used to work with their Greek tragedies to help soldiers they would bring the soldiers into communities. It's the main thing. When Andrew got out, he wanted to be with his community. He liked being with his soldiers. And that's what the Greeks would do. They'd bring them all together in, in the amphitheater and show plays. And all the, in the uh, you know, the citizen soldiers would feel like they were in this together with the whole city. So I'm trying to do a lot of things with the book, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, suicide rate amongst veterans i think is going through the roof if i'm if i'm reading the figures right it was when i was writing the book when when i was actually doing the one chapter in orlando which is in yeah. around 2017 or 18 it was 22 a day i think it's gone down slightly but when you think of that that's that's just horrible and um you know that's that just really needs to uh stop we, we yeah. got to do something to halt that was there an organization? Was there a uh, political entity, uh, a president, uh, a congressman, or anybody that you went to and said, hey, can you help me? Was there any kind of help like that, uh, of wisdom from outside to say, hey, we can probably help you with these resources to help you find Andrew? Yes. We, um, I have, I've been a teacher for years, and I had a, a student who was in the um, – who was in the foreign service and I met her and she connected me with a a congressman and we talked to the congressman, but, uh, and, you know, and he tried to help, but he, he, there wasn't really much he could do. We were just trying to find Andrew at that point. So we've had different people like that. And one time I have a, a friend, I have a friend who's a retired Marine and he sort of went over and above the, uh, the normal, uh, 
things you do for a friend. And he contacted a friend of his who's in the, who was in the Marines and now, and then rose up in the Navy. And, uh, he, this man knew he, he looked, he could tell that Andrew, he said he was doing all right. He's living as a survivalist. His Marine training is helping him out. And that's all I can tell you. You know, so when, when, you and I think of Andrew being homeless. He could simply be living in the environment as a survivalist, being in nature. Um, and that may be the world right now that he's most comfortable in. Is that a way that it could be seen? He, yes. He Well, what he does is he camps out, we think, up in the mountains or down along the river, depending on what time of year it is. And then he then he has a, a bicycle, and it has all his gear on it, his tent and everything. And then from when we met the other the homeless people, the, so many. The greatest thing about doing this was how helpful people were. The homeless people were incredibly helpful, and the police all over the country were actually really helpful, and would talk to us, and especially retired from the military service. And, um, you know, I'm very thankful for, for, for them. And so many people I met on airplanes, they would talk to me about it and have a connection. Uh, where am I going with this? Oh, the homeless people told us that what he was doing was he would stay on the move because it can be a little dangerous being homeless. And they said, no, he's doing the right thing. He camps in a different place. He, he can't tell exactly where he is. He doesn't stay in one place too long. And he he likes being off by himself. He doesn't really trust anybody, and um, that's what breaks our heart because he's he he just always was loved being with people and loved being social and loved loving. He was a very loving child. Yeah. So the um so he's not quite a full time survivalist, but because you could see him going through town, he pushes his bike through town sometimes. And we have way back in 2018, we have pictures that the uh, some detectives took of him in a in a uh, Walmart getting some canned food, but he, he combines the homeless with, uh, he's very disciplined and he does, um, you know, camp out and he has a tent. I tell you, the pictures were a wonderful asset to the book uh, because you, you saw the smiles, uh, him uh, in the shower and your quote underneath about oh, something. Yeah. Did you think you've been in the shower long enough? Yeah. Uh, those kind of things. Uh, but then the actual pictures that they sent you of the last sightings or somebody that thought it was him and that it is him uh, that you confirmed are really get you into this riveting story that once you pick this book up, you can't put it down. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. Excellent book. Do you have a copy of it that you can hold up to everybody so they can see the cover? I brought one just in case you ask. Yes, please do. And this is, folks, the book that I'm recommending everybody get right now. And is that by chance him, or is that just an artist's rendition of on the cover? That's, that's Andrew and my daughter. My daughter Eliza for a walk on the beach, and they were just sitting out on the on the dune at sunset. Wow, yeah. that's beautiful. Wars over, come home. And uh, Patrick, they can go right on Amazon right now and pre-order this because in about a week and a couple of days, it's going to be being shipped to them, right? Yes, May 16th is the uh, launch date, the uh, publication date. And uh, 
It should be shipped to them right away. And who's your publisher? Tidepool Press. It's Fantastic. A, a press in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Well, it's beautifully done. Uh, I, I love your heart, Patrick. I love the way you write. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time. I'd love to have you come back because I didn't even get through chapter two and what I wanted to talk about. Uh, and I really wanted to drill down more into PTSD, but I love uh, the discussion that we have. Thank you for sharing your story with us and our listeners this evening. Well, thank you for being so well prepared and having read the book. Oh, I, it was an honor. And, and you are a very gifted. I highly recommend everybody buy this book. And it'd be an awesome uh, Mother's Day gift, but probably Father's Day gift would even be uh, better yeah. since by the time it comes out, Mother's Day is already going to be passed. But Father's Day, I can't think of a better book to give all the fathers than this book, uh, War's Over, Come Home. Thank I you appreciate so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Have a good evening. Okay, you too. As I like to do every every week at this time and before we close out, is just let you know, is this not an unbelievable story about a family's love for each other? And when you read the book, you find out not only the father's love, but the mother's love and the brother's love and the sister's love and how it all just starts energizing and how you really get caught up in this unbelievable story that would make an unbelievable movie. Uh, it really would. So if any director is listening tonight, uh, get all to Patrick. I'm sure he'd love to sell you movie rights to this book because it's excellent and it has that kind of storyline in it. Don't miss this book. But as we go into next week, I want to let you know that tonight, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going to be dealing with in the morning when you wake up, I always want to let you know, and I think Patrick will even agree with me tonight, there's always hope. That's why he keeps on searching. There's always, always hope that that next minute, something good will happen. The phone will ring. Somebody will find him, and he'll come home. There's always, always hope. Never give up on that. Join us right here next week for another edition live from Houston, Texas, of Breaking the Silence. God bless. Have an awesome week. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.